Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins. If you're attending the NAMM show in January, stop by the Collings booth to say hello to the team, get hands-on with their selection of customised acoustics and electrics, and check out some exciting new prototypes they're working on for 2024. They'll also have a few of their world-class artists on hand demoing various instruments. And if you can't attend, don't forget to follow their Instagram and Facebook accounts throughout the show for photos, videos, and the latest news. Collings guitars are hand-built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If one of your 2024 resolutions is to improve as a musician, Peghead Nation is the place to go. They have 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music. Courses cover bluegrass, old time, Irish music and swing, plus lessons dedicated to improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 a month and you can add more for $10. Try any course free for a month with the promo code JAMALONG. Make 2024 a year of more music at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Jared Walker, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. So my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along today is Jared Walker, who most of you, I guess, will know as the mandolin player in Billy String's band. Uh, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it'd be great to chat about your kind of current work with Billy because that looks like it's been a, a hell of a journey over the past few years. Um, but it'd be really cool just to sort of dig back a little bit as well and chat about how you how you got to where you are now. Um, doing a bit of reading about you, and I've, I noticed that, which seems to be a really common theme in bluegrass, that you come from a musical family. Your dad was a banjo player, your brother's a banjo player, right. and you grew up around music. I did. I grew up going to bluegrass festivals my whole life. Primarily, my dad played. Uh, he was a full-time dentist, but he started playing banjo in high school. And and then my grandpa started playing after my brother, my older brother, Corey, took up the banjo. So it was very much a family affair for a while. And we would go to a place to take lessons in Tampa, Florida, called the Bluegrass Parlor. And at one point, there were there were four generations of walkers at those jam sessions. My great grandpa cool. played some harmonica, so it was my great grandpa, my grandpa, my dad, and uh, my my brother and I. It was That's really pretty, cool. Great, great way special. to spend time with your family. Yeah, yeah. And I interviewed Chris Eldridge a while ago, and he he mentioned your brother because he's been working with him. Um, and he said, "Do you know Corey Walker?" And I said, "No, I don't think I do." And then I realised I do because he's I've seen him on my little laptop screen throughout sort of the last couple of years playing with David Greer mm. on his live streams. Um, right, so right. that was cool. Yeah, yeah. So growing up sort of near near Tampa, were there many people to play with outside of family? Was there much of a scene down there? You know, there there are pockets of bluegrass anywhere you go in the U.S. And a lot of times in places you wouldn't expect. A lot of great fiddle players have come out of Florida, especially fiddle players for some reason. You know, Chubby Wise and Vassar Clements mm. and Aubrey Haney and a bunch of, bunch of really good ones have come out of that area. But as far as... Uh, a bustling scene. I wouldn't say Florida is the place to go if you want to pursue a career in bluegrass. But there, there were always people to play with. You just gotta look and find where they are. Yeah, yeah. And was it? Were you sort of kind of hooked from an early age, or did it? You know, was it with a? Did you have lots of other interests as a kid, and it sort of eventually emerged as a main thing? You know, when I first started playing, it was more of just something I had to do. It was like another one of my chores. You know, you gotta you gotta wash the dishes and you gotta fold some laundry and you gotta practice the tunes that you know. You know, because at at seven years old, I was more interested in getting that stuff out of the way so I could play Nintendo. 
And, you know, at at that age, I, I didn't, I was very apathetic about it, but I grew to really love it a couple of years into it. Um, uh, especially after going to a contest and which is where I met Sierra Hall and, um, uh, a few other people. Um, but she was so, she was so good right off the bat and she was, you know, like a year older than me. So that kind of inspired me to work a little bit harder and, you know. Yeah. There's definitely something about that thing when you're a kid of, um, doing something in isolation and then seeing how other people perform and, you know, what sort of standard other people are and it can really sort of get you motivated, can't it? Um, and so, so you mentioned meeting Sierra Hole at a contest. What were your, who were the people you listened to? Who were your sort of favorite players as a kid? Well, around that time is when Nickel Creek really started breaking out. And for me, being being a young, uh, aspiring mandolin player, to hear Chris Thiele just doing something completely different was very, very inspiring to me. And it resonated with me more than some of the older stuff at that time. And I always liked Sam Bush and, uh, my dad would play a lot of Bela Fleck records, which Sam was the drum machine for all that yeah. stuff. And I'd say Ronnie McCurry was a big influence on me too. Um, that was one thing that we could all listen to in the car. You know, everybody agreed on on a few things, which was Allison Krauss and Union Station and the Del McCurry Band. And I guess the Newgrass Revival too. Those were those were easy sales, you know, all yeah. around the table, you know. Yeah, yeah cool. And I, I think I read somewhere that you took a lesson from Chris Thiele when you were a teenager. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I, uh, I was very fortunate to go to the Mandolin Symposium, which is no longer in existence, but that was in Santa Cruz, California. And it was a really, really cool uh, camp. It was all mandolin focused and they had great mandolin builders that would come. And it was hosted by David Grisman and Mike Marshall. And the first year, Chris Thiele was was another one of the one of the primary teachers. And so I I was able to get a lesson from Chris and uh, got a lesson from Mike Marshall when I was there, you know, just, you know, which a lot of that stuff I still apply in my playing today, you know, chords and just, you know, I remember one of the, one of the first things that we worked on, uh, Chris and I was, he wanted me to, you know, just choose a song, a song that I knew, a fiddle tune, and we would just go through that and, just kind of talk about it. And I realized that, you know, I started playing it really fast, you know, as kids do kids like to play music really fast. It's fun. Still is. Yeah. But I realized that I didn't really know the melody to these songs fully because, you know, I just kind of grazed over the top of it, but I didn't really Mm. get deep down into it. And, and realize what made that melody different from another one, you know, just a little, you know, one note here, one note there. That's the difference in a lot of these fiddle tunes because most of them are one, four, five GCD, you know, and some variation, but that, that is something that really stuck with me and took me a while to apply really. But yeah, that was a really cool experience. Very similar conversation with Brian Sutton. Um, I take lessons from Brian as part of the artist works thing. And he's just sort of talking about how many notes you can take out of a tune and still recognize it. Like what is, what is the essence? Which are those, those particular key notes that make that tune, that tune. And, uh, and I'd never thought about it and it's incredible sort of just opens your eyes to what the, the structure of something is and what it all hangs off in a way that I'd never even thought about before. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there are some tunes that, you know, you can, 
you can take out half of the notes and it's still recognizable, which is, which is really, which is a really freeing, uh, uh, realization. There's a, the best example that comes to mind for me is in new camp town races, hmm. which is a Frank Wakefield tune. You know, most people play all the notes. Um, actually that's, that, <laughs> I just, I just hummed a different song, <laughs> but, Nonetheless, nonetheless, on, on a lot of those songs, Frank will, will take out a lot, a lot of notes. And it's, uh, it's hard to demonstrate without an instrument right in front of me. But, you know, you can, you can apply some of those techniques to just almost use your pick like a fiddle bow, you know, and not, you know, it's okay to have your, finger in one place and you have your right hand going mm. and you still get the integrity of the song. Um, I don't know if anything I just said made any sense. But... No, totally, totally. It's, um, and I think particularly on, you know, with bluegrass tunes and particularly on mandolin where there's that kind of constant motion thing going on, you know, and uh, with the sort of alternate picking, even as guitarists, you're, you're, you're sort of making the movement, even if you're not playing the note and it's, it, it's just it's a freeing thing. I found that I think it was actually New Camp Town Races. I was talking to Brian about as part of the lesson because it feels like it's a lot of notes in that tune, and he just helped oh, wow. me see my way through it and you know work out how just to take the melody from it. Well, that's uh, that's validating. If if I if I chose the same one that Brian chose, <laughs> he's he's a master at that. Um, it it's really nice to know that you can do that it makes your job a lot easier. And oftentimes it's more musical because your brain can only process so many notes at once. And it can be a little bit of sensory overload if you try and cram all of that stuff into one tune, but you see these fiddle players and they just have these long bow techniques hmm. and it's really nice. And, you know, in, in lieu of a guitar or a mandolin having any kind of real sustain, to use that approach and and hold a note twice or three times as long as you normally would, it adds another layer of depth to your playing, I feel. Yeah, and I think you're sort of maybe skipping ahead a bit here, but um, one of the things I was going to talk to you about is in, in your style, I noticed you use tremolo, for example, more than a lot of people do, and double stops, and there's, there's a definite... Um, just that that sort of conscious taking your time with things sometimes and not just rushing onto the next note all the time. And if, I don't know if that's something that you consciously sort of chose to do or if it's something that's just developed as you've gone, but it feels like something you employ more than a lot of mandolin players do now. Well, I think the modern style of mandolin, give or take, is more centered around playing a lot of eighth notes but the the early, you know, like Bill Monroe and a lot of the early players like Frank Wakefield or uh, a, a lot of a lot of other players use tremolo a lot more prevalent prevalently. Mm. And I I have kind of tried to use some of those same techniques to where it has the integrity of bluegrass with the double stops and with the, you know, oftentimes there's a choppiness, like a syncopated thing that is not even perfectly in time. And it's not necessarily the most clean, but it, it evokes a certain kind of emotion that can be lost when your focus is how clean can I make this? How, how perfect can I play? I feel like that can take away from the music itself because cleanliness is not music per se. It, it It's just something that you can apply to music. You should be able to play clean, but it's okay to intentionally choose to play messier. You know, you look at like Keith Richards, yeah, you know, yeah. he's a, 
by by all definitions, he's fairly sloppy in, in his in his approach. I, I mean I mean that in a very endearing way because he's one of my favorite players. But it's not he's not going to play uh like uh like Steve Vai or somebody who can really just play just so many notes and so clean and there's there's a art to that too. But generally I'm drawn to the the players who are a little bit more rough around the edges. Mm. You know, and, and that's something that is that's a taste of mine that is somewhat developed in the past, you know, 10 or so years. You know, I didn't always feel like that. Yeah. And I guess harking back to that, you know, I think sometimes when you are younger, you are really impressed by speed and cleanliness. And just because at first you think, oh, that's just incredible to be able to do that, which of course it is. But then as you develop as a musician yourself and start to make your own choices and look for the things that please you in other people's music, you sort of develop your own, your own style, your own taste that goes beyond that. And um, hopefully that's something that keeps developing through your musical life. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's something that I'm constantly trying to work on, you know, because there is a certain balance that you have to, adhere to there's there's a real difficulty trying to play authentic sounding bluegrass that is simultaneously it's like you have to have one foot in the old world and one foot set in you know the current times Hmm. which is tough because a lot of the language in bluegrass songs are like is very old timey and you know i've never i've never milked a cow and i've never churned butter you know but there but there's a way to you know there are certain themes like you can always talk about you can always talk about love you can talk about loss but talking about trains then you start getting into a territory where it's like do i really know what i'm talking about here like i've never you know rode on the rails you know, like they did back, back in the day. And, but there is a, there is a certain balance that I think you can strike, which it's really tough to write a simple song. I've come to find out one that is uh, authentic to you. And for me, I, you know, I like a Mm. lot of modern music and I think there's a way to happily marry the two yeah and that sort of songwriting thing i was is something else that um sort of struck me because you've you've got writing credits on sort of previous on the last billy strings album but you've certainly got quite a few on the the recent one and and like red daisy is a great example of a a recent song that has a definite um old soul to it you know there's it's a song that could have in many ways been written a long time ago and yet it feels utterly of these times as well yeah, that is a that is one that my my good friend Christian Ward and I wrote, and it started out as a song called "Black Daisy" because we had a black Labrador uh, retriever in my family, and Christian was visiting from out of town, and so you know, I I think my family and I were, were off at church and, and he was, you know, back at the house trying to do some songwriting. I was like, well, maybe we should, I think red sounds better. And then, you know, maybe we, you know, maybe it can meet a flower at that point. Um, but that is, that was, a that was somewhat of a challenge that, that we, we decided to write a song that sounded like a Stanley brothers song. And you gotta be, you really have to write within a certain box to make it sound like that style, you know, but there are so many great writers who wrote within that box where you can kind of tap into it. Like there are certain words that are tough to use, like, you don't want to use headphone or, you know, cell phone in the song because it kind of takes you out of the, 
it takes you out of that kind of vibe, but you can still, you can still talk about, you can still talk about everyday things without necessarily saying AirPods or cable TV or, you know, uh, take your pick of modern convenience. But I, I was happy with how that one turned out. It was definitely dancing between the two, two worlds. I think we, I think we did, did that one fairly successfully. A uh, f- few people have thought that it was an old song and that's a, the biggest compliment that you could give us for that song. Cause yeah, that's what yeah. we were trying to accomplish. So. And I guess that's a, uh, might, maybe an interesting one because the kind of audience you guys have is not entirely a bluegrass audience and not entirely not a bluegrass audience. So that knowledge of what is traditional repertoire versus not might be slightly different at your gigs than it is for some people. For sure. There's a huge bluegrass canon that I assumed most people knew who were at the shows and come to find out a lot of these people did not come from a bluegrass background and they came more from the, the jam band or rock world you know, people coming from all different worlds at, at these shows. But there's there's really never a time in my life that I remember n- not knowing Little Maggie or Little Sadie, you know, Little Birdie, all the little songs. <laughs> um, but these songs to a lot of the people in the crowd are fresh and brand new where to me, before I joined Billy Strings, I would have been hesitant to play some of those songs because in my mind, it's almost like, it's almost like doing like blowing in the wind. You know, everybody knows the song and, you know, do we really want to hear that song again? And apparently, yes, people do want to hear those songs still. And that is a, refreshing thing. And in the same sense, what I was talking about when I had a lesson with Chris Thiele and he was essentially pointing out to me that I didn't know how to play the melody to the song that I thought I knew. Yeah. And in a similar sense, there are, there are the original versions of little Maggie and all those songs that are really potent versions which over the years have kind of gotten a little watered down, you know, with every version that that is made of it, it gets a little farther and farther away from the forefathers, you know, of, of bluegrass who originally recorded it. And if you can hearken back to that earlier recording and try and channel some of that energy, you can kind of breathe some more life into it, which I think, I think Billy has, done a really good job at kind of channeling those those old souls yeah and i think that's really interesting because both as a singer and a guitar player he's definitely got um like that sense of being grounded and rooted in bluegrass and it's you know i I, i'm sure you avoid reading too much online because the endless raging debate about whether what you guys do is bluegrass or not is always boiling away there somewhere on a forum or a Facebook page. Um, and I imagine <laughs> it doesn't really matter to you guys in the same way. Um, but, you know, I've seen videos of you guys play around a mic and it sounds bluegrass to me. I've seen videos of you guys playing in amphitheaters where everything's plugged in and going through pedals and it sounds like music and like the, the two are part of the same thing. They're not, you know, you don't do a, it's all part of the same set. It's all part of the same record. It's all part of the same expression of who you guys are. But there's definitely, from when I listen to to it, there's a a real strong kind of sense of tradition there as well. It comes from, and I think it was, I can't remember who I was talking to. It may have been Tristan Scroggins was sort of saying that in order to progress, you have to know what it is you're progressing from in the first place. Like you can't be progressive if you don't have a place to start from. You have to sort of know the tradition to be progressive in the first place. Right. You know, Sam Bush said, I like this Sam Bush quote. He he said, you can't play new grass if you don't know how to play bluegrass, which is essentially the same thing that Tristan was saying. 
And I completely agree with that. And a lot of times people are more drawn to the progressive thing without having that solid foundation in traditional bluegrass music, whatever that means to you. Hmm. The, the whole debate, whether Billy Strings is bluegrass or not, it's very much a yes and no kind of answer. Yeah. Sometimes we play stuff that is bluegrass. Red Daisy is as bluegrass as it comes. And then other songs are clearly not bluegrass and we wouldn't try and claim that they are. Um, but it's okay to like chocolate and vanilla ice cream, you know, yeah, one's not necessarily better than the other. Um, and the whole the whole debate there over whether is this bluegrass or not, you could take that back 50, 60 years ago, and you could argue that nothing after Bill Monroe and the original Bluegrass Boys were bluegrass. Yeah. Because that was the that was the original form of it. So anything outside of that you could make an argument is not bluegrass. It sounds very similar, but is it, is it Bill Monroe playing with Earl Scruggs and Lester Flatt? And it. And then you see those, see those photos of Bill Monroe's band with an accordion in it. And you know, like even this fixed thing, it was a fixed thing, wasn't a fixed thing all the time anyway. And right. You know, Bill Monroe himself was incredibly progressive. Nobody, had played the way he played what he played before. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a rock and roller. He was a country rock and roller. You know, he's his, his double, his double stops and his, his downstrokes. Mm. It sounds like Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which uh, of the time that kind of helped pave the way. I believe actually Chuck Berry was influenced by Bill Monroe. Um, but it's, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day, you know, we're, what, what I'm doing, I'm just trying to make the best music that I know how to make with the devices I have and the resources that I have. And I'm not, not trying to, to learn how to play bebop or anything. I'll leave that to somebody else who's more grounded in that, you know, you kind of have to more or less choose a path to go down. Mm. And I've chosen to go down this, uh, Neo bluegrass path. And I'm happy that I did. There was a while where I kind of strayed away from bluegrass, just being more or less uninspired, uh, by the artists that I was listening to. And I just grew up, grew tired of it. And then I started listening to the old stuff, the really old stuff, the, mm. the Bill Monroe and, and the Stanley brothers in particular, the Stanley brothers, I would say, um, really helped me, uh, really helped light the fire, uh, relight the fire that is. And I, that's still my favorite stuff to listen to is that, that old, that old bluegrass, it's it's hard to beat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. And for somebody like me who comes from sort of outside the tradition and outside the nation, you know, I'm like a, a British guy who grew up listening to the Beatles and Queen, and um, I find that endlessly fascinating because there's just, particularly now, like when I first started listening to bluegrass, it was quite hard to come by stuff in the UK. I mean, you'd go to CD shops and try and find a, to know what to buy in the first place and then find a copy. And like now everything's out there and it's just an endless, you can, you can dig back and back and back. And it's one of the things I love about music is you find a thing and you just pull on a thread and see where it goes. And it takes you back to all sorts of things and forward to all sorts of things and sideways to all sorts of things. And it's one of the joys of music um, that I, you know, can, can keep you entertained for a lifetime. Absolutely. That's definitely one of the great things about living in Nashville is 
there's such a wealth of country and bluegrass memorabilia and CDs and vinyl. And you meet people who are the grandson of this famous country singer and you meet this songwriter and they're, they're just everybody, you know, the house that, that I live in that I'm doing this interview in was built by, uh, I, I don't know which one of the, of the duo it was, but there was a Opry, uh, country duo. They, they were Opry stars back in the, back in the fifties named Lonzo and Oscar. Oh yeah. 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 Which, yeah. yeah and and either Lonzo or Oscar built this house. And my my next door neighbors are living in the Leuven brothers house. Hmm. And, you know, my old landlord who lived right next door to me used to work in a used to work in a shop. And he was telling me, you know, stories about little Jimmy Dickens coming in, riding in a Cadillac and could barely see over the steering wheel and stuff. Um, it's just, you get so many cool stories living here and that's why I'm here. And that's why people move here. Mm. It's, you know, you know, you can go, you know, John Hartford's house, uh, is just right over there, you know, just in, in my neighborhood. And, and he's buried and Jimmy Martin is buried like all, all kinds of people. Roy Acuff's buried in the cemetery right over there. It's, it's really bizarre. Um, and it's a very unique place to live. And I'm very happy that I'm here. It took me a while to warm up to it, but when did you move? How long have you been here? How long have you been there? I moved to Tennessee right out of high school i went straight to middle tennessee state which is in murfreesboro which is just about an hour south of nashville and i've lived in nashville proper for seven or eight years and you know when i was living in murfreesboro being an hour away i might as well have still been living in Florida hmm. at that time because it's just far enough that you don't want to make that trek into Nashville, you know, cause that's a two hour round trip. You know, it's, you got to plan for it as opposed to just, you know, spur of the moment. Hey, let's, let's go over to the station in. It's yeah, less yeah. of a commitment. So I'm more likely to go. And, you know, that's really the way you make all those connections and, and did you did you move to Nashville for for music? Was that the you know what was your what was your setup at the time when you moved? Because you before playing with Billy, you played with Missy Rains and Claire Lynch, didn't you? Right, right. Yeah i I moved to Tennessee in a roundabout way to play music, but also I just was more or less following my brother, Corey up here. And he was at middle Tennessee state. And at that time I was planning on taking over a Martin guitar retailing business um, called my favorite guitars. Um, and all of my brothers were going to be taking over this business and it was, they were the largest independent retailer of Martin guitars in the world. Right. Um, so that was a really good prospect. And so we all pursued business degrees and I was still planning on taking that business over when I joined Billy strings <laughs> and I I'm, I'm glad that Billy kind of convinced me to not do it. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard to turn down, you know, a big, really big paycheck. And ultimately I'm very happy with the decision that I made. 
albeit much riskier of a decision, hmm. it ultimately paid off. And I'm happier doing this than, you know, I'd rather play the instruments than sell them. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know. So what what sort of um, the point you joined, Billy, where was his career at? Because it's easy to, to look at where you guys have got to now. And, uh, you know, it's it's huge. And the following we've got and the sort of the loyalty and the size of the following and just the sheer energy of your guys following is amazing but um so what point did you come into it all so i played my first shows with billy in 2017 the fall of 2017 i was still with claire lynch at the time and claire told me when i joined her band that she was wanting to play for two or three more years and, and then really scale things back and more or less retire. Um, so the timing of it really worked out really well. Um, I got a call from my brother that, that Billy was looking for somebody to play on a tour and so I knew Royal, uh, the bass player, Royal yeah. Massat, from doing some previous gigs uh, in a different band. And so I, I texted Royal and I called Royal and I, you know, pretty soon they were flying me out a couple days later to play some shows. And we went straight to Baltimore and, uh, you know, we were rehearsing on the sidewalk, you know, we, uh, didn't really have time to go over a whole lot, but it was, it was really fun. And even though it was more electrified and amplified than anything that I'd ever played in before, it was simultaneously more bluegrass than anything that I'd played in before. Um, you know, we were playing, like songs like, like Slow Train, which is a Larry Sparks song. And I can't remember what all we played there, but songs like Sophroni and, you know, Slewfoot and songs that are very, very traditional bluegrass, which I was absolutely shocked and floored to see people singing along to these songs and not sitting in chairs, but they were standing up. And that was something that was right away kind of a uh, a shock to the to the system, you know. Um, but it, it was simultaneously the the most progressive and the most traditional gig that I'd ever been on at the same time, which I think is part of the formula to the success. Yeah, absolutely. And did the, the sort of the amplified side of things, was that a bit of a learning curve or were you kind of used to playing plugged in at that point? Uh, no, I didn't have, I didn't have a DI. I didn't have a pickup. I had never done any of that stuff. And I had to get a pickup, put in my mandolin in the day or two that I had home in between flying out, I, I told Royal, I, I was like, I, I've never needed a, a pickup before. I'll, I can just play into a microphone. And he's like, uh, you're probably going to need a pickup. These crowds get pretty loud. And I was like, well, okay, I guess, I guess I'll do that. Sure. Fine. Whatever. Um, and you know, obviously look at where things are at now. It's, yeah, yeah. It would be impossible to just use microphones, which, you know, people online, oftentimes they're, they're like, you know, you know, if, if these guys were any good, they wouldn't have to use all this amplification, you know, Tony Rice never used amplification and like, oh, blah, 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 keep, keep on going. But it would be impossible to play into microphones in some of the rooms that we're playing in now. Um, and people, people are there to, 
to have a good time. And a lot of times having a, a good time means screaming and hollering and shouting. And we all agree the sound of a microphone is better than the sound of a DI. And I wish that we could play to these crowds with solely using microphones and that we could just get around one mic and, and we could all sing together and we can, you know, feel the, the push and the pull of each other's mm. voices. The, I mean, that's bluegrass, you know, it's, it's hard to play bluegrass and have it feel the way that it's supposed to feel when you're playing with in-ears and, you know, when you're separated and it's, it's, you, you don't really get to hear the, the room. You just hear, you, you're very isolated and you hear what you hear, what, what you tell the monitor guy, um, what you want in your ears. And a lot of times it's hard to know what you want. So yeah, you know, if we could get away with playing into microphones and doing nothing else, no DIs, we would love to do that because the tone of a microphone is always better than the tone of a DI. And the tone of an instrument in a room is better than the tone of an instrument into a microphone. Yeah. You know, there are, but you know, you can't play on stage with no microphones. You just can't do it. And you can't play to 5,000 people with SM 57s and 58s. You just can't do it. You can't crank them up enough. You know, yeah. the, the whole room would be just a, a feedback tank. And it's, uh, it's just, it comes with the territory that you have to use in ear monitors and, you know, it's, uh, it's pluses and minuses. And I guess you sort of find yourself getting further and further away from your bandmates on stage as well, which is, you know, not only are you plugged in, then you're also, you know, that, that, that thing of crowding around one mic, you're, you're right up there next to each other. And you must be particularly playing some amphitheaters and some of the outdoor venues must be hard to feel as connected on stage as well. It is for sure. But, you know, we've been doing it for so long now. We've played who knows how many shows. Uh, one year we played 185 shows in in a year. Wow. That was, you know, 2018 or maybe 19. So we've been playing, you know, we've played 500 or more shows together in that setting. So we've gotten more comfortable with it. And we recently started going with wireless packs so we can walk around, we can walk around the stage and interact a little bit more freely. We're not as confined to our cables as we were before. Billy was able to move around in the past uh, for like the past year or, you know, year and a half and some change. But that's a recent addition for us. And it's, it's, it's a little bit more interactive, mm. just being able to walk over, you know, when the, when the banjo is taking a solo to walk, to walk over closer to him, I can feel, feel the, the banjo a little bit better. And I, I don't know if I can really even hear it any better because my ears are, are plugged with in-ears, but it definitely seems to make a difference. And, you know, just, there's nothing better than just being around one mic. And I guess the and, joy of it is that uh, being plugged in, it allows you guys to experiment with some different sounds, which has become a big part of the, the live sound. And it's, you, you know, you can't do that with a microphone in the same way. Um, and that is that, is it always been, you know, pedals and, you know, various additions to the sound always been part of the live set? Is that something that's grown more in recent years? Well, it was always there 
at some capacity, Billy was using pedals before any of us were, the rest of the band. I think through his connection to green sky bluegrass. Hmm. And I, I credit Paul Hoffman, uh, the mandolinist and lead singer for green sky, uh, for helping me and, uh, their, uh, their former, uh, front of house engineer, Greg Burns. They both really helped me get things dialed in for my mandolin because it's somewhat uncharted territory. Mm. There's not a huge precedent for, for pedals and mandolin. There are, I don't know if there are any pedals that are specifically built for mandolin because there are so few people yeah. doing it. And it's such a niche market. Um, but I've been able to find through those guys, you know, Paul, Paul told me what he has found that works. He, he told me that reverb and delay, those are, those are safe bets. And he might've told me a, a freeze and I, uh, I took what he said and, and really ran with it and, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta drop some cash to get the good, good equipment. Half of it is just buying the stuff, hmm. you know, for me, for me personally, I'm never going to learn how to work a pedal. If I just go into a store every once in a while and, you know, tweak, tweak it a little bit. But if I have it at home and I've invested that amount of, of money into it, I'm going to be more dead set on figuring the thing out. And I think, I think now I've, I've gotten things much more dialed in, but I definitely credit those guys with getting me this far. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you say, the, the market out there for people to be building pedals just for mandolinists is very small. So, you know, even, even the, the pedals you buy are voiced for a different instrument. And, you know, it's that, that I think that's really interesting, that point about you can't get a sense of what something's like in the store because not only do you not play the same in a store as you would at home, but also a pedal, like where it sits in your chain and fits with the other pedals and how it influences how they all work together. Such a You can only do that by playing around with your setup. Right. Right. All that stuff matters. And I have on many occasions bought pedals that sounded fantastic in the store. And then I take them on tour and Andy Lytle, who is our uh, front of house man, he tells me when I engage that pedal, he can't hear it. You know, but I hear it in my headphones. So it's, it's very experimental. And, you know, you buy something, you hope it works. It sounds great right there. Um, but it's uncertain whether it will translate on stage or not. Mm -hmm. It's a very strange thing. And it, it really is very experimental and it, you know, I've never found any distortion that sounded good on a mandolin, which is th that's w another thing that Paul Hoffman told me. He says it just doesn't seem to work. And I don't think that particular kind of distortion, whatever that would be, to be suitable for mandolin, I don't know if it exists yet, you know, or maybe it's just not meant to be. Yeah, um, yeah. But there, there's some some pedals that are built. You know, most of these pedals are built for guitar. So some of them, you know, say a distortion pedal, like I was talking about, you plug a mandolin into that, and it just sounds cheap. You know, yeah. it's a really nice pedal, but it just sounds just sounds cheapened. 
with a mandolin. You know, it sounds, sounds like, you know, 1980s, you know, uh, you know, guitar tone, you know, it's not, not necessarily what I'm going for, but I'm always on the hunt for something new and a new sound and they're out there. I'm sure, sure of it. Well, it's like hunting for treasure. Seem to be going through a, a kind of golden age of uh, pedal building at the moment. There's, there's so much out there. You could, you know, like narrowing it down to what you actually want to get must be half the battle now. It is. It is. You go into these pedal shops and they've got 500 boutique pedals for you to choose from. And they all have bizarre names that don't explain what they even are. <laughs> you know, like, like here, try the green chair. Try the, try the, you know, try the, the golden dragon. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll try those. I don't know what that means, but you know, so it's, it's just like, it's, it can be very tedious, but that's kind of what you have to do, you know, and it helps you find somewhat of a unique sound. Sometimes you buy a pedal that is, uh, only applicable to one song. You only, you only use this pedal for one song for maybe 15 seconds, you know, every five shows, hmm. yeah, you yeah. know, but it's like, it sounds, it sounds so good that it's, it's, it's worth it to add that other layer to the, to the sound. Yeah. You know? yeah. And you it, gotta, you gotta be really dedicated, you know, to, to make that kind of commitment. And with all, all that kind of, sort of size of venue and plugging in in mind like you guys i'm really excited you guys are heading over to the uk for i think the first time i don't think you guys have been over here before in a few weeks and i'm going to get to see you play um in a pretty small room probably compared to what you're used to these days like because you're doing a couple of nights at um islington assembly halls which is not a huge venue um so that'd be really cool you know one of the joys of being a uk bluegrass fan is that when people do make it over here you tend to get to see them in pretty small spaces which is fantastic Right. Yeah. I've, I've been to the UK a few times, um, mostly with, with Claire Lynch. We did quite a bit of, uh, European travel, but this will be a, a first for, uh, Mr. Strings. He's, I think he's only been to Mexico to play strings and soul, which is a festival yeah, yeah. out there on the beach. Um, so I know he's, he's really excited to go over there and, and see everything. And, and we all are, it's been a few years since I've been over there. And it's been a few years since any of us have been anywhere really, isn't it? That's true. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, and you guys were one of the, the sort of the, the acts that managed to find a workaround through all of that. It's sort of doing parking lot gigs and, you, you sort of managed to stay pretty creative with it, didn't you? Well, I can't take any credit for any of that. And really, none of the musicians were spearheading it. It was mostly our, our management and booking agent. And they got so creative with all that stuff, you know, and they were able to pivot so well with all the changes that were, you know, you, you'd wake up one day and, you know, a mask mandate would have been lifted in a particular state or, yeah. you know, it, it was, it was like on a state by state and day by day basis. And then there is also the optics of it, you know, just because something opens up, do you want to, do you want to appear like you're careless by going over there and be the first ones to do it. Mm. So there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of factors to consider, but more or less it, it was, it was the management that was able to really do fantastic things during that period and, and keep all of us working, which was, which was a beautiful thing at one point. I was, when things shut down, I started doing landscaping with, with my, uh, with my friend, James Key, who's a great bluegrass 
uh, singer and mandolin player and guitar player. And there was, there was a point where all the landscapers uh, were bluegrass musicians <laughs> and it would have made a really good band actually. And like, you know, uh, Jeff Saunders, who is uh, now going on tour with Sierra Farrell uh, playing bass. He was one of the landscapers and Luke Monday, who was a fantastic singer and banjo player. And we had a, we had a full band out there, you know, planting uh, camellias and azaleas and all kinds of stuff. And one day I was landscaping, uh, one afternoon and and the next day I was flying out to do a live stream at Red Rocks. Wow. And that was just a really bizarre period of time. Yeah. It it it's really crazy to look back on it, you know. To do a live stream period with no audience is a bizarre thing. You know, you get done playing, you felt like you did good. Nobody's there to clap except for like, you know, three people, you know, who are running the sound or something. It probably sounds weirder than no people clapping. Yeah, it's <laughs> a it's a very strange sensation. But but yeah, we were we were lucky to stay working for sure. Yeah, and it was so there was something joyous about seeing it on um like on Instagram just seeing that this was happening at a time where so many people were struggling to do stuff and everything felt so sort of bleak, just seeing that things were happening, I think cheered up a lot of people that uh, probably, it probably had a bigger effect than you realize. So, you know, they're not being able to hear the, the, the cheers and the claps for a live stream probably don't realize that the amount of people around the world saw that happening and took a bit of heart from it at a difficult time. I think it's, was something joyous about that, you know, that we'll find a way of doing this. And I heard a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people seem to be really appreciative and, and thankful for us doing that, which really means a lot. You know, it's, it's hard to really see, see what you're doing from somebody else's perspective. Yeah. You can only see it through your own lens. Um, but that that was very, very touching. And one one of the cool things that's come out of the pandemic is is sort of that ability. Particularly, I mean, maybe I feel this more keenly because I live in the UK, so we don't get the kind of gigs. But the live streaming of stuff that has continued. So, for example, you could get a live stream of Bella Flex Bluegrass Heart Tour, and I can watch it sat in my living room at home. And I, I noticed that um, all your March dates are being live streamed, aren't they? On Nugs, I saw a, a thing the other right. day that all the shows you're doing, and it's. I think that's something positive that's come out of it that music can reach further. The technology that sort of came about just to get us through has stayed and people will get to see these shows who wouldn't normally come to them. Right. And I, I think that kind of platform at this point is still fairly expensive to, you know, to do it right and to have it look professional and everything. But I, I, I think in the, in the future, if I had to guess, you know, the, the, the cost of all that stuff will go down so that it'll be more feasible. You know, you'll probably be able to set up a cell phone or something, you know, Mm. and like the microphones will get better and you can, and so everybody can live stream and have like a quality looking, looking show. Um, that is definitely one of the positive things that's come out of the pandemic is all of all of these other avenues in which you can discover new music and, and uh, see what's going on, you know, from the comfort of your own home, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very uh, 20, uh, 2020 uh, kind of, kind of progression. I guess it, it was inevitable that this might happen at some point, but we probably, put it into a time machine, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, it's very cool. So what's coming up? You guys are obviously coming over to Europe. I'm presuming that your date book is filling up with gigs for the rest of the year fast because people will have missed seeing you for the past two years. We're desperate to get out and come to a gig. Yeah, I I pretty 
I more or less know where I'm going to be uh, through 2023. Really, wow. um, but yeah, we. Uh, we're, we're really excited to go, go over to Europe. It's, you know, everything that's happening now, you know, all the Russian and Ukrainian stuff, I, you know, kind, kind of makes me wonder if that is going to affect any, any of our European plans. You know, I don't, I don't know how, how things are looking over, over in, in the UK, but you know, I know it's not all that far away from you guys. Yeah, and it's uh, it's something that it feels like isn't going to go away quickly. And given the nature of the person instigating all of it, it could all be very volatile at any point. Um, so yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. Right. But you know, there's as little chaos and as little bloodshed as possible, um, and that it doesn't get as bad as people think it could but right you know we're only a few days into it right i was trying to go to sleep last night and i got a notification that belarus was starting to back russia and it's uh granted i don't i don't know the the politics all that well of i don't know the history all that well but it doesn't it doesn't look good that's for sure certainly makes makes me nervous yeah and i think and i think sort of harking back to that we were talking about um stuff that went on during the pandemic and seeing gigs still happening and you you were sort of saying it's it's really hard to gauge what feels responsible in terms of being the people going out and doing those gigs and but at time at these times like you know we've been through two pretty dark years and there's a new darkness looming and people like that music is needed more than ever at times like that and things that bring us together. And one thing that has come out of the pandemic is just this renewed sense for people to connect in whatever way that is, whether it's virtually or physically or, and I think people are desperate to get back to live music and just sense that there's nothing like being in a room with a bunch of other people experiencing a thing that will only be there for that one night and then it's gone. And the live streams are great, but there's something about being, in a room and knowing that that one version of what you saw, nobody's not in that room is going to experience what you did. And that's, it's a really life affirming human thing, isn't it? And I think it's something we're all desperate to get back to. It really is. And a lot of times I will play something on stage that I, I don't remember doing, you know, it's, that happens a lot. You know, you're, you're trying, you're trying your very best to come up with something that's musical and new and meaningful in the moment. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and a lot of times we stumble upon some kind of interesting groove or some, some cool kind of jam thing that we, we all agree it sounded good but we can't remember what it was and we could go back and listen to it, but it's, it's also, you know, listening back to yourself is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not always fun to listen to yourself under a microscope. Um, more, definitely more not fun than fun. (laughs) So, but it it would be very beneficial to go back and listen to some of those things like, Oh yeah, that, that really worked out. Let's try and do that again tonight. But I think there's also a certain amount of spontaneity that makes the, the music have a certain energy to it, you know, not knowing what's going to happen and, you know, kind of, you know, have that, uh, the illusion that you're, about to fall off a cliff, but you know, you never, never actually fall. You and know, that's, that's you always, what, yeah. always make it back. And that's what brings people to shows like yours. They don't come and see it once they come and see, you know, that you're playing two nights in London. There'll be, I'm sure a fair chunk of the audience is there for both of them because you're going to get a different experience and a different moment. And, you know, watch you teetering on the edge of a different cliff for a bit. <laughs> and uh, right, it's the joy right. of it, you know, it's the joy of it. Um, Thanks so much for doing this. It's been it's been a joy. Um, 
been a really cool conversation and thanks for making the time to do it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And fingers crossed, looking forward to seeing you guys on stage in a few weeks. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll see you there. Thanks so much to Jared for doing that. That was a lot of fun to record. Um, I will stick some links in the show notes so you can find where to get hold of Jared, his uh, social accounts, things like that, and also links to Billy String's upcoming tour dates um, and details of how you can live stream the shows they've got coming up too. Cool. Uh, been a blast as always. Looking forward to the next one. I will be back next week. Have a great week and happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.